Hello. Welcome to the Bore You to Sleep podcast. The podcast that will hopefully help you get to sleep. I am going to read an open source book, one that is not particularly interesting, but one that is hopefully boring enough to get you to sleep. Is there something interfering with your happiness or is preventing you from achieving your goals? I know there have been times in my life where I've struggled with sleeplessness, which is why I strive to help people everywhere with theirs. I'm proud to have partnered with a new sponsor, BetterHelp. BetterHelp will assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, which doesn't take long at all. It's not a crisis line. It's not self-help. It is professional counselling done securely online. You can schedule weekly video or phone sessions in the comfort of your own home. You can also log in to your account anytime and send a message to your counsellor when you need. You'll have access to a broad range of expertise in BetterHelp's counsellor network which may not be locally available in many areas. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches, so they make it easy and free to change counsellors if needed. Visit trybetterhelp.com forward slash bore you to sleep. That's trybetterhelp and join over 500,000 people taking charge of their mental health. Special offer for Boy to Sleep listeners with 10% off your first month at trybetterhelp.com forward slash boy you to sleep. Tonight's readings comes from Master Rockefeller's Voyage by William Clark Russell. It tells the story of a young lad who takes his first trip on the high seas and ultimately becomes a master of them. My name is Teddy and I aim to help people everywhere get a good night's rest. Sleep is so important and my mission is to help you get the rest that you need. Each episode is designed to play in the background while you slowly fall asleep. Special thank you to iTunes listener Hugo Depujo from Brazil. Apologies if I mispronounced your name. Thank you for your lovely review during the week. Also, a very big thank you to the patrons and anchor sponsors that continue to support the show. I am very grateful for your ongoing support. The podcast is completely free, and it's the support from listeners that allows me to keep bringing out more episodes. If the podcast helps, a fantastic way to say thank you is to tell a friend who might also need help with their sleep Please also subscribe and leave a review. It really does help out. If you would like, 
You can also say hello at boyyoutosleep.com, where you can support the podcast. I'm also now on Twitter and Instagram, at boyyoutosleep. In the meantime, lie back, relax, and enjoy the readings. Master Rockefeller's Voyage Chapter 1 My name is Thomas Rockefeller. Father and mother always called me Tommy, and by that name was I known until I grew too old to be called by anything more familiar than Tom. I have seen people look at one another and smile, perhaps, when they have heard that name Rockefeller mentioned as that of a family. But I here beg leave to state that the Rockefellers are an exceedingly ancient race, who, if they do not claim to have arrived in this country with William the Conqueror, can excuse themselves for not having landed with that chieftain, by being able to prove that they had been many years established, when the keels of the Norman galleys grounded on the Hastings shore. Amongst my ancestors were several sailors, who had served the king or queen of their times in the navy of the state. A portrait of Ebenezer Rockefeller, who was a rear admiral in the early years of George II's reign, hung in the dining room at home and represented a face like that of the man in the moon when the planet rises very crimson out of the sea on a hot summer's evening. He had a tail on his back and a great copper speaking trumpet under his arm, and his forefinger, on which was a huge ring, rested upon a globe of the world. The artist had painted in a picture of a thunderstorm happening through a window, with the glimpse of a rough sea, and an old-fashioned ship like a castle tumbling about in it resembling a toy, Noah's Ark tossing on the strong ripples of a pond. It might have been my looking at this red-faced ancestor of mine and admiring his speaking trumpet and the noble colour of the weather which stained his face that first put it into my head to go to sea. I cannot say. Who can tell where little boys get their notions from? I would stand before that picture and in my small way dream about the ocean, about sharks, tropic islands full of coconut trees and monkeys, and parrots gorgeous as shapes of burnished gold. And I would dream also, all in my small way of flying fish 
like little lengths of pearl flashing out of the dark blue brine on wings of gossamer, and elephants and ivory tusks, and of men in turbans and robes, glittering with jewels, like the dark velvet sky on a midsummer night, and so on and so on, until there arose in me a passion to go to sea, and behold with my own little eyes the wonders of the world. Father and mother tried hard to conquer my desire, and then when they found I would still be a sailor, they pretended to consent, secretly meaning to weary me out, or to give me a good long chance of changing my views, by delaying to take any steps to humour my wishes. At last, finding my mind to be wonderfully resolved, my father talked to my mother gravely about my disposition for the sea, told her that when a boy exhibited a strong inclination for a walk, no matter of what nature, if honest, he should not be balked, that I might have the makings of another Captain Cook in me, or at all events of a Vancouver, and end my days as a great man. Besides, my dear, said he, one voyage at least cannot harm him, it will fill his mind with new experiences. It will also test his sincerity. It will act as the strongest possible persuasion one way or the other. It will be cheaper too than a year of schooling and more useful, I don't doubt. So, my dear... Let us make up our minds to send him into the merchant's service for one voyage. However, it was some time before my mother consented. She would not very strongly have objected to the Royal Navy, she said. But she considered the merchant's service too vulgar for a Rockefeller. Vulgar, my dear, cried my father. Why do you forget your own Uncle Martin was in the service of the Honourable East India Company? Oh, but, she answered, Uncle Martin was always a perfect gentleman, and even he had been a common sailor on board a barge he would have carried himself with as much dignity and been as fully appreciated by people capable of distinguishing as if he had been an admiral of the blues. Of the blue, I think it is, said my father. The red is a cock of the walk, said I, who had been listening to the conversation with much interest. Well, it ended, after many talks, 
in my mother agreeing with my father that one voyage could do me no harm, and that if I returned as eager for the sea life as I now was, it might prove as good a calling for me as any other vocation that could be named. So after making certain inquiries, my father one day took me to London with him to call upon a shipowner who lived close to Fenchurch Street. He had five vessels, three of them large ships, of which two had formerly been Indian men, and the others were barks. They were all regular traders to Australia, that is to say, to the different ports of that colony, and one or more of them were always to be found in the East India docks discharging the wool, with which they returned home full of, or taking in merchandise for the outward passage. The ship owner, Mr. Duncan, was a large, fat, cheerful man, with a very knowing eye, and supposed to be already worth, my dear, about a million and a half, as I afterwards heard my father tell my mother. We passed through an office full of clerks into a little black room where we were received by Mr. Duncan, who seemed delighted to make our acquaintance. He patted me on the head, said that he was always fond of boys whose hair was curled, declared that he could not remember having set eyes on a more sailory-looking lad, promised me that I should become captain of the ship if I worked hard. And then he and my father went to business. The terms were a premium of 60 guineas for the first voyage, together with 10 guineas for what was called mess money, and with regard to pocket money, said Mr. Duncan, I should say if you give the captain enough to enable him to put half a crown a week into the lad's pocket, whilst he's in harbour, the boy will have more than he needs for simple enjoyment, and too little, said he, closing one eye, for what Jack calls larks, the name of the ship was the Lady Violet, and Mr. Duncan told us that she was commanded by Captain Tempest, who, notwithstanding his stormy name, was a gentlemanlike person of mild disposition, one of the best navigators out of the port of London, and beloved by all who sailed with him. There is no flogging now, I think, sir, at sea, said my father. Oh dear no, cried Mr. Duncan, smiling all over his immense crimson face, 
a barbarous practice, sir, very happily suppressed ages ago. How are boys punished, asked my father, at sea when they deserve it. Why, sir, answered Mr. Duncan, the captain usually sends them to his cabin and lectures them paternally and tenderly. His admonitions rarely fail, but if there be great perversity, then possibly a little extra duty of trifling kind is given to them. But there is very little naughtiness amongst the boys at sea, sir. Very little naughtiness indeed. Perhaps I should add in my ships, when no bad language is allowed, where sobriety is strictly encouraged, and where even smoking is regarded as objectionable, though of course, added Mr. Duncan, drawing a deep breath that sounded like a sigh, we do not prohibit it. A good deal more to this effect passed between my father and Mr. Duncan, and then certain arrangements having been made, we took our leave. The ship was to sail in three weeks. She lay in the East India docks, and as she would not be hauling out of the gates until the afternoon, there was no need for me to present myself on board sooner than the morning of the day of her sailing. My outfit was procured at a well-known marine establishment in Leadenhall Street. I very well recollect the pride with which I tried on a blue cloth jacket, embellished with brass buttons and surveyed my appearance in a large pier glass. I had never before been dressed in brass buttons, and felt now that I was thus decorated, that I was a man indeed. Also the glittering badge of a sort of wreath of gold, embracing a gorgeous little flag on the cap, which the outfitter placed on my head, enchanted me. Indeed, I could not but think that the privilege of wearing so beautiful a decoration would be cheaply earned by years of exposure and hardship, not to mention shipwreck, and even famine and thirst in an open boat. It seems to me, said my father to the outfitter, to judge by your list that it is the practice of young gentlemen, when they first go to sea, to take a great number of shirts and fine duck trousers with them. They need all their fathers allow them, sir, said the outfitter with a bow. Is it, asked my father, that they must always appear very clean? No, sir, answered the outfitter. I regret to say 
that it is the habit of most young gentlemen when first they go to sea to swap their trousers and shirts with the baker for what is termed soft track. What is soft track, I said? Bread, the likes of which we eat ashore, answered the outfitter. Don't they get the same at sea, said I. No, young gentleman, answered the outfitter. There's nothing but biscuit eaten at sea by sailors, and it's sometimes rather wormy. When it is so, soft tack grows into a delicacy, compared with which midships men trousers and shirts count for nothing. I'd rather have a biscuit any day, said I, than a slice of bread. I thought the smile the outfitter bestowed upon me a rather singular one. My father looked pleased and said to the outfitter, Master Rockefeller will keep his clothes, I know. Not a doubt of it, sir, responded the outfitter, and forthwith proceeded to show us the oilskins, sea boots, bars of marine soap, clasp knife, and the other articles which were to form the contents of the brand new white wood sea chest, with grommets for handles and with a little shelf for curios, and upon the lid of which my name, Thomas Rockefeller, was to be painted in strong black letters. I will pass over my parting with my mother and sisters and little brother. My uniform came down a week before I sailed, and my wearing of the clothes greatly helped to sustain my spirits, whilst they made me feel that I was a sailor and must not betray any sort of weakness that might seem girlish. I tried hard not to cry as my mother strained me to her heart, and I said goodbye with dry eyes. But I broke down when I was in the railway carriage as the engine whistled and the familiar scene of the station slipped away. My father, who was accompanying me to the ship, put his hand upon mine and said something in a low voice that was, I think, a prayer to God that he would protect and bless and guard his boy and then turned his face to the window and when presently I peeped at him I saw that he had been weeping too. Our dear little friends, let us always love our father and mother and be grateful to them. They suffer much for us when we are young and when we are incapable of understanding their anxieties and griefs. 
later on in life, we find it all out ourselves, and it is as sweet as a blessing sent to us by them from heaven, if we can remember that we were always good and loving and tender to them when we were little ones and when they were alive to be made happy by our behaviour. When I look back from the hour of my trotting into the docks at my father's side, down to the time when I felt the ship heaving and plunging under me upon the snappish curl of the channel waters, all that happened takes so misty a character that it is like peering at objects through a fog. Everything, of course, was new to me, and all was startling in its way, confusing my little brains. And it was a sort of wonderland also. The docks were full of business and movement and hurry. Huge cranes were swiftly swinging out tons weight of cargo, from the holds of ships to the snorting accompaniment of steam machinery. Dockyard labourers were chorusing on the decks of the vessels, or bawling to one another on the quayside. The earth trembled to the passage of heavy wagons, and the ear was distracted by the shrill whistling and roaring puffing of locomotives. There were fellows aloft on the ships, dismantling them of their spars, and rigging or bending sails, and sending up masts and crossing yards and revving gear for a fresh voyage. It was a brilliant October morning, with a keen shrill wind that made even the dirty Thames water of the docks tremble into a diamond bright flashing, and in this wind you seemed to taste the aromas of the countries, coffees and spices and fragrant produce, the mere flavour of which in the atmosphere sent the fancy roaming into the hot and shining lands. The Lady Violet still lay alongside the quay. I recollect thinking her an immense ship as we approached. Aloft she looked as heavy and massive as a man of war, with her large tops, her canvas rolled up on the yards, and all her sea gear, a bewildering complication of ropes in its place. She had a broad white band along her sides, upon which were painted black squares to imitate portholes. She was an old-fashioned ship, as I know now, though then I saw but little difference between her and the rest of them that lay about. Her stern was square and very handsomely gilt, 
There were large windows in it and the sunlight flashing in them made the long white letters of her name stare out as though they were formed of silver. She had a handsome flag flying at the mainmast head, exactly like the one that I wore in the badge on my cap. The red ensign floated gaily at her peak, and at the fore royal masthead, the blue peter, signal for sailing, was rippling against the light azure of the sky. My father seemed as much confused as I, by the bustle and novelty. He grasped my hand and we stepped over a broad gangway bridge, onto the ship's deck. Here was confusion indeed. All sorts of ropes, ends knocking about, men on deck shouting to men in the hold, pigs grunting, babies crying, cocks crowing, and hens cackling. Steerage passengers bound out as emigrants wandering dejectedly about, unshorn, melancholy men, in slouched hats, pale-faced women with hollow cheeks, stained by recent tears, cowering under the break of the poop and gazing fallenly around them, and drunken sailors on the forecastle bawling out coarse joking farewells to friends ashore. We went up a ladder that conducted us to the upper deck or poop, and when I noticed that along the rails on either side were stowed a great number of bales of compressed hay as fodder for the sheep, which were bleating somewhere forward, and for a cow that was now and then giving vent to a sullen roar, as though she were vexed at being imprisoned in a great box. There was several midshipmen on the poop, running about. They glanced at me out of the corner of their eyes as they passed. I could not but envy them, for they seemed quite at home, whilst here I was, trembling nervously, by the side of my papa, staring up at all the masts and wondering if ever I should be made to creep up to those great heights. And if so, what was to become of me when I had reached the top? There was no need indeed to glance at my buttons to know that I was a first voyager. My wandering eyes and mouth were assurance as strong, as strong as though I had been labelled Greenhorn. My father, stepping up to one of the midshipmen, asked if the captain was on board. I don't think he is, said the youngster. This is my son, said my father, who has come to join the Lady Violet. 
Are there any formalities to go through? Any book to be signed by him? We are rather at a loss. All too young as I was to be an observer, I could see a spirit of laughing mischief flash into the lad's brown, handsome face, and I have no doubt that he would have told me to go forward and seek for the cook to report myself, or have started me on some other fool's errand of a like sort, but for a sunburnt man in a blue cloth coat coming up to us, and asking my father what he wanted, on which the midshipmen slunk away, and joined two other midshipmen, who, on his speaking to them, began to shake with laughter. No, there is nothing to be done, sir, said the weather-stained man, in answer to my father's question. I suppose your chest is aboard, he exclaimed, looking at me. Better go below and see that your kit's arrived. We shall be warping out in a few minutes. Are you one of the officers, sir? asked my father. I am the second mate, sir, and my name is Jones, answered the other. My father was about to put some further questions to him, but just then Mr. Jones, bawling out, right you are, to someone who had rushed to him to come from some part of the ship or the shore, and then he rushed away. And that concludes tonight's readings aboard the first voyage for this young lad. I hope you've enjoyed the episode. If you're not quite tired just yet, please feel free to listen to another episode. In the meantime, I'll be working on bringing you a new reading very soon. Good night.